this special episode of New Retina Radio, Diagnosing and Identifying Appropriate Patients for Cyphovery, Pegcetacopalin Injection, is sponsored by Apellus Pharmaceuticals, which is responsible for its contact. Hi, listeners, and welcome to the podcast. I'm John Kitchens, a retina specialist at Retina Associates of Kentucky, and today we're going to be discussing Cyphovery, or Pegcetacopalin Injection, which is a treatment option indicated for patients with geographic atrophy, or GA, secondary to age-related macular degeneration. I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Scott Walter, who is a retina specialist at Retina Consultants in Hartford, Connecticut, and Dr. Esther Kim, who is also a retina specialist practicing at Orange County Retina in Santa Ana, California. Hi, John. Happy to be here and discuss Cyphovery with both of you. Likewise, excited to be here and looking forward to our discussion. Awesome. I know we have a lot to discuss, but before we get into it, we'll go over important safety information for Cyphovery. Cyphovery pegcetacopalin injection is indicated for the treatment of geographic atrophy secondary to age-related macular degeneration. Cyphovery is contraindicated in patients with ocular or periocular infections and in patients with active intraocular inflammation. Full important safety information will be provided at the end of this podcast. So the focus of our discussion today will be about some best practices for identifying appropriate patients for cyphovery. I'll begin with a little background about diagnosing GA, then we'll pass it over to Scott and Esther. Before we had a therapy to treat GA, I really wasn't looking for it in my patients. Unfortunately, the only time we started to look for atrophy was when a patient who was getting treated for wet AMD started to lose their vision. These patients had done everything right, gotten all of their anti-VEGF injections, and yet they still were losing vision. And in those cases, we started to look for atrophy as a way to explain why that patient was continuing to lose vision despite having a dry retina. Now that we have cyphovery, I have to say that the number of patients I'm seeing with GA is really more than I ever expected. Generally, I'll see about 60 to 70 patients a day, and I would say that easily 10 to 20% of these patients have some form of GA. Scott and Esther, are you experiencing the same thing? And how many patients with GA are you now seeing in your practice? Well, I think GA is a lot more prevalent than we historically appreciated because we're much more attuned to it now with the availability of cyphovery to treat these patients. So I'm paying a lot more attention to some of the early warning signs for the potential development of GA that we might have ignored in the past. Things like Drusen regression and other OCT biomarkers like IRORA, or incomplete retinal pigment epithelial atrophy and outer retinal atrophy. So I'm now monitoring these patients much more closely so that the disease does progress to GA, I can treat it earlier on. Historically, I haven't seen most of my patients with dry MD very frequently, maybe once every six to 12 months. But now that I'm recognizing the high risk for progression to GA in some patients, I'm bringing a lot more patients back every four to six months. Because I see a lot of complex pathology in my clinic, the number of GA patients is really a smaller proportion of the patients I see. So in a 50 to 60 patient clinic, maybe 10 to 20% of the patients I'm seeing on a day-to-day patient's basis have some degree of GA. I agree with all those points. I might see 60 plus patients per day. And in a typical month, there might be around 70 to 80 patients with clearly visible GA. Now that we have cyphovery to treat GA, I am making a point to evaluate all my existing AMD patients with a fresh set of eyes to see if there are any signs of GA. As I look closely at the OCT images of patients who were previously thought 
to have, say, intermediate dry AMD, I often see little pockets of GA that are insidious. On the other hand, I have had some patients who have extensive drusen and pseudodrusen who don't have any GA at all. So I have been surprised both ways. Having cyphovary has led to at least a minute or two extra in my clinic for each patient because I have been combing through the imaging, looking through the lens of identifying GA. So Esther, in those images, what are some of the key features that you're looking for to diagnose a patient with GA? And what specific imaging modalities are you using to look for those features? Great question, Scott. I am looking for the presence of sharply demarcated atrophic lesions in the outer retina, which includes photoreceptors, RPE, and underlying choriocapillaris. Initially, I thought I was going to have to use autofluorescence imaging on everyone, but I have honestly found the infrared image that accompanies the OCTB scans to be extremely helpful. Since I already obtained an OCT scan at almost every visit, on the infrared image, I can see the outlines of these sharply demarcated borders. Corresponding to these areas, the underlying choriocapillaris becomes more visible due to the outer retinal atrophy. So I'll use that infrared image as my initial screen, and then I corroborate that with the adjacent OCT image and scroll through that to see if what I am seeing is indeed an area of GA. And if in doubt, I'll get a fundus autofluorescence image. I do like the autofluorescence because I find it really helpful to highlight those areas of GA, particularly when I'm using it as a patient education tool. So when I'm thinking of starting a patient on cyphovary, I will pull up those FAF images and contrast them with prior FAF images when available. And then I will use these to help patients better visualize and understand their disease process. I point out the atrophic areas in the image and explain to them that these are the quote unquote blind spots in their vision. I think the autofluorescence is good to obtain as baseline imaging and as intermittent check-in points, but otherwise I will use the Heidelberg as my go-to OCT imaging. So I like to alternate dilated and undilated exams for a lot of my AMD patients. And whenever I'm getting an undilated exam, I'm also getting an optos photo with an autofluorescence image capture. And it's nice to have this depth of imaging to go back and look at the evolution of these GA lesions over time. I agree that the autofluorescence imaging makes it really easy for patients to see the sharply demarcated black hypoautofluorescent lesions. And I like to use the overlay feature as a patient education tool. So with this feature in the Opto software, I'll take the patient's original image from maybe two or three years ago and then overlay the current image. And as I toggle from one image to the other, that really highlights the enlargement of the lesion to the patient. I also think that the OCTB scan is another modality where the imaging can be really helpful in explaining to the patient what's going on. So with the B-scan images, I'll show the patients that signal hypertransmission. And I tell them that that's where the light should be absorbed by the retina. But because that area of the retina is basically dead, the light is just passing right through it. And that's why they can't see in that area. John, how are you looking at for GA? And what sort of imaging tools are you using to help explain to patients what's going on? Well, Scott, you know, since most of my patients that I'm at least seeing right now are patients that are existing patients with GA, I, I'm fortunate. I have historic OCT images for them. For the new patients, I completely agree with Esther about the fundus autofluorescence and OCT. 
Uh, and, but what I'll do is when I see some atrophy on that existing patient, I'll go back to the Zeiss system and use that advanced RP analysis tool. And, and with that, you can go back years into the past. And I'll usually go back a couple of years. And depending on how many scans we have the patients, sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to interpret. But if there's a good, clear image for reference, I'll pull that up and do a two-year comparison. And it's really nice because you can show the patient their image from two years ago where it can outline the atrophy, or sometimes it just shows the atrophy in that kind of red-free kind of reference image. And then you can see today's image. And I'll put those up side by side. I'll pull one up to the full screen, the previous one, and then I'll pull up today's. And it really shows that progression of atrophy really nicely. And you can really see and show the patient and their family how much atrophy they had two years ago or a year ago, and how much atrophy they have now. Now, the metrics uh, can give you a little bit of an accurate picture, although sometimes it can be difficult to interpret. But one thing that stands out when you do this is just how aggressive geographic atrophy is in the majority of our patients. Now, let's talk about patients that are appropriate for sifovary therapy. At this point so far, I'd say I've probably treated about 100 patients. Uh, typically, these are patients who know they have a problem. They've seen some degree of vision loss in one eye. They've often experienced the early signs of visual dysfunction in their other eye. They have pretty obvious GA on that OCT or autofluorescence. Bottom line, they know they have a problem and they want to do anything they can to slow it down. I let it be a patient-driven decision. I'd say 80% of the patients that see that advanced RP analysis, see where they were a year or two ago and see where they are now and how much it's progressed, sometimes in their better seeing eye, they want something and, and they want sifovary. And when I show the patients this and how much it's, it's, it's progressed, they really say, I got to do something, you know, and I explain to them, listen, sifovary doesn't cure the GA. It doesn't reverse the damage. It's not going to make your vision any better, but it, it may slow down their lesion growth, which can help delay the progression of GA. And many patients will say, I have to do something. I want to do anything. Scott, how do you determine who's appropriate for sifovary therapy? Well, first off, I agree. There's a lot of enthusiasm from, from patients for sifovary when you explain to them the high likelihood of progression to central blindness from this condition. But on the whole, I've been pretty conservative in terms of who I'm talking to about this therapy. I really don't want to be treating patients who are already blind from GA or patients who are likely to go blind over the short-term therapy. So if a patient has poor visual acuity at baseline, I'm telling them right off the bat, I just don't think they're a good candidate for sifovary. On the other hand, I am discussing sifovary with a lot of patients with good visual acuity, for instance, 2040 vision, especially if they have documented progression of perifoveal geographic atrophy. Unfortunately, a lot of my patients with GA are, are elderly in their 80s, 90s, and some of them have major medical comorbidities, such as metastatic cancer, end-stage heart failure, or other serious medical conditions that are going to realistically limit their lifespan. So I think Patient factors are also important in terms of selecting who's likely to benefit from this treatment. Esther, how are you determining which patients you find eligible for sifovary therapy? I agree with all the points that were raised by John and Scott. Um, in general, I am enthusiastic about sifovary. So once sifovary was approved, I was actually surprised at the number of patients who wanted to start therapy right away. And it became my initial instinct to figure out why a patient would not be eligible for sifovary therapy. So as Scott mentioned, 
I consider things like counting fingers vision and whether or not the patient already has large total areas of foveal involving GA. And then I go into sort of the risk factor profile. So I will look closely at the cup to disc ratio and ask about things like sleep apnea and cardiovascular risk factors since these could lead to NAION. In fact, if a patient has known sleep apnea and is not compliant with their CPAP machine, I will actually tell the patient that they need to be on top of these things in order for us to be serious about starting therapy with Cyfobri. And then I will also dig into any history of ocular or systemic inflammation, which may raise the intraocular inflammation risk profile. So safety, in other words, to first quote, do no harm, unquote, is a serious consideration. And I will share all the major potential side effects with my patients. In addition to all the risks universal to any intravitreal injection, I will discuss those unique to Cyfovri, specifically the risk for conversion to wet AMD, the development of NAION, and then also the potentially serious possibility of retinal vasculitis. So before starting Cyfovri in any patient, I have a very frank conversation with them about the potential risks and benefits, including actual percentages, because I myself am a numbers kind of gal, and I like patients to have those numbers as well to help them make an educated decision. And then I will go into their images and review them with them and tell them that while there is no cure, treatment with Cyfovri can help slow down the progression of their GA lesions while reminding them that the atrophy will still grow, but at a slower rate. And then I will review the relevant risk factors for Cyfovri treatment, especially highlighting ones that might be specific to their unique situation, and then provide them with some reading material. So this conversation between the patient and me regarding Cyfovri therapy generally takes place over one to two visits. And in many cases, you know, the patient will say, hey, look, doc, what do you think I should do? You know, what do you recommend? Um, but I know that at least we've gone into it and it's been a two-way conversation. So to this point, I've started treatment in about 70 to 80 patients. And the patients currently being treated are those who have suffered some degree of visual function loss from their GA or who have had demonstrable growth of their GA lesions in a short period of time. I think these are all excellent candidates to begin therapy. You know, Esther, you you mentioned safety considerations. You did a great job kind of covering all of the considerations, but you know, there's been some uh, some issues with retinal vasculitis. Uh, I tell my patients the most up-to-date numbers are approximately one in ten thousand injections of patients that will experience retinal vasculitis. Scott, how do you address this? Well, I agree with Esser. Safety is obviously at the forefront of what we do. And because we're taking care of individual patients, it's obviously important to weigh the risks and benefits of treatment on an individual basis before we make a decision to initiate therapy with Cyfovri. I do think it's really critically important to counsel patients about the safety data from the phase three clinical trials, especially the data indicating that there's an increased risk of developing neovascular AMD and that risk seems to be related to the frequency of dosing with Cyfovri. I do also touch on some situations that have been identified in post-marketing surveillance, including retinal vasculitis. So I definitely want to counsel patients about this, and I try to counsel my patients that I'm doing everything I can to stay on label and practice in accordance with the clinical trials in order to minimize the risk of these events. How about you, Esther? Yeah, I'm with you guys. I um, certainly want to take these 
factors into consideration. It's the conversation is always evolving. Um, but because of these reports, I am reluctant to start treatment in GA patients who are completely asymptomatic or like, let's say 2020, unless the patient is requesting treatment and is knowledgeable about the risks associated with it. And this is a big one, but for patients with bilateral GA, I will start treatment in the worse seeing eye rather than in the better seeing eye. And I tell the patient, this is because should you suffer a side effect, we want that to happen in your worse seeing eye as opposed to your better eye. I will then do a full dilated exam about two to four weeks after the first injection to look for any signs of intraocular inflammation or retinal vasculitis. And I make certain to review the warning signs for the patient to return immediately should they experience any symptoms. You know, Esther, that's so diligent of you to start in that worst seeing eye. It's a great clinical pro. You know, I think it's really important to be open with our patients and explain our actions, the, the drugs we use, the potential side effects. This has been a really great discussion about diagnosing and identifying patients appropriate for Cyfovery. In closing, I first want to thank Esther and Scott for joining me. I appreciate you sharing your insights and perspectives. We'd also like to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Cyfovery, please visit the Cyfovery website at cyfovery.ecp.com. If you'd like to hear more discussion from myself, Esther, and Scott, please check out our other podcast on using Cyfovery in your practice. Thanks for listening. Please stay tuned to listen to the indication and important safety information. Indication, Cyfovery pegcetacoplan injection is indicated for the treatment of geographic atrophy secondary to age-related macular degeneration. Important safety information. Contraindications. Cyfovery is contraindicated in patients with ocular or periocular infections and in patients with active intraocular inflammation. Warnings and precautions. Endophthalmitis and retinal detachments. Intravitreal injections, including those with cyfovery, may be associated with endophthalmitis and retinal detachments. Proper aseptic injection techniques must always be used when administering cyfovery to minimize the risk of endophthalmitis. Patients should be instructed to report any symptoms suggestive of endophthalmitis or retinal detachment without delay and should be managed appropriately. Retinal vasculitis and or retinal vascular occlusion. Retinal vasculitis and or retinal vascular occlusion typically in the presence of intraocular inflammation, have been reported with the use of Cyfovery. Cases may occur with the first dose of Cyfovery and may result in severe vision loss. Discontinue treatment with Cyfovery in patients who develop these events. Patients should be instructed to report any change in vision without delay. Neovascular AMD. In clinical trials, use of Cyfovery was associated with increased rates of neovascular wet AMD or choroidal neovascularization. 12% when administered monthly, 7% when administered every other month, and 3% in the control group by month 24. Patients receiving cyfovary should be monitored for signs of neovascular AMD. In case antivascular endothelial growth factor, anti-VEGF, is required, it should be given separately from cyfovary administration. Intraocular inflammation. In clinical trials, use of cyfovery was associated with episodes of intraocular inflammation, including vitritis, vitriol cells, iridocyclitis, uveitis, anterior chamber cells, iritis, and anterior chamber flare. 
After inflammation resolves, patients may resume treatment with cyfovirid. Increased intracular pressure. Acute increase in IOP may occur within minutes of any intravitreal injection, including with cyfovirid. Perfusion of the optic nerve head should be monitored following the injection and managed as needed. Adverse reactions. The most common adverse reactions, incidence greater than or equal to 5%, are ocular discomfort, neovascular age-related macular degeneration, vitreous floaters, and conjunctival hemorrhage. Please see accompanying full prescribing information for more information.